Thank you, choir. We appreciate you. Good morning. I want to just add a word of praise and thanks for Laney sharing this morning and a powerful example of what it means to really come to Christ and to get right with Him. And uh, the idea of being um, aware of and conscious of our own sin and having the courage to get honest with ourselves and with, and with God. And how God... Amen. And one of the things that many of you have heard me talk about that has been a concern for me for quite some time in our, in our contemporary culture is we, we are really good in the church at confessing other people's sins. And uh, that, that's, a, that's a formula for disaster. And it takes courage to own our own sin. And the Bible is clear. In Revelation chapter 21, one of the descriptions of the people who go to hell is they're cowards. And uh, it takes courage to follow Christ. And, and the first place that it takes courage is to get right with ourselves, um, with God, and to own our truth about ourselves. And so what a great, what a great inspiration and a, and a great example of, of the grace of God and a power of God at work in her life. So, Father, we do thank you that Jesus is the life changer. And I pray today that we will be um, one of two things, that we'll either uh, affirm the change you've made in our life as we've trusted you, or we'll be convicted if our life hasn't changed of the need to trust you. In your name, amen. The word gift is a word that's often used in our language and in common exchange, and the gift a gift, according to the dictionary, is a thing given to someone without payment. That's the common uh, exchange of usage that we have in our uh, contemporary context. However, the Apostle Paul talks about gifts in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, as we are in the year of the Apostles, and last week we did an overview of 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to focus on a particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to talk about what we call spiritual gifts, and it's in the larger context of a section, a subsection of the whole book that we talked last week about from chapter 11 to chapter 14 that we called worship manners. In other words, the section of the book where the apostle deals with various things regarding when the church comes together to worship, what's the proper behavior uh, as we gather together uh, corporately. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation 
of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all given one Spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. And if, there were all the, if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we close these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Now, with that passage as the foundation of where we're headed today, it would be appropriate, I think, to first answer the question, what is a spiritual gift? When the Bible talks about a spiritual gift, what's it talking about? Well, Understand that in the original language of the New Testament, in the Greek that it was written, there are several words that are translated into English gift and refer to a gift, something that's freely given. But in this particular context, when gifts that are designated spiritual gifts are spoken of, the primary foundational root word that's used to describe that with its variance based on variant context and grammar and so forth, but the primary root word is a word with which you're very familiar. 
It's the word charisma. Charisma. Now, in our English usage, the word charisma doesn't have anything to do with a spiritual gift at all. In fact, the way we use this Greek word in our English language is to talk about somebody that's got a lot of personality and appeal, right? Or they're a very a charismatic person. They're a person that's usually outgoing, and they're a person that is, uh, draws other people to them and makes friends easily, whatever, whatever. I don't know how you want to define it or describe it, but that certainly has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, yet that's the primary word that's used to describe what he's talking about there. One Bible dictionary says that charisma is refers to a gift or a spiritual endowment. Continuing, it says it refers to that which is freely and graciously given by God regardless of its kind, physical or spiritual. So anytime God does something for us to give us something as a charisma, it means that it's come from God as his gift. Now, the interesting play on words here is that the, the, the stem of this word, charisma, is the word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which is translated in your Bible, grace. Okay? And that word charis is a root or a stem of many different variant words in the New Testament. For example, the Lord's Supper is commonly known as the U, E-U, charistia, the Eucharist. Why? Because Eucharist means thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is a word in the original that's built from the stem charis with an E-U in front of it. And when you put an E-U in front of it in the Bible language, original Bible language, it means to add a blessing to it. For example, a eulogy in a funeral. is Logos means word and you is blessing. Somebody does a eulogy at a funeral, they're doing a tribute to someone. Okay? And so when it comes to thanksgiving, a chorus with an EU in front of it, a chorus is something that was freely given, and the EU is the blessed response to that free gift. Thanksgiving. So we give thanks to a, and, and a response to a gift by being thankful, and therefore it's a Eucharistia. But here it's a charisma referring to a gift that is given by God, which fits, frankly, with my working definition of grace in the Bible. It's God doing for us, in us, and through us what we are powerless to do on our own. And I'll say more about that as we get to other parts of letters of the New Testament. But in case you haven't ever heard me say this, and I've heard it said many times, I think grace is one of the most misunderstood and misused concepts in the New Testament. Why? Because we use it as an excuse to sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're under grace. You're not under law. Grace is the power not to sin. It's not the excuse to sin. That's what the, and grace is always connected to power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God says to Paul when he prays for relief, he says, 
My power, my grace is sufficient for my power is perfected in weakness. Grace and power always go together. Grace is God's power working to do for us, in us, and through us what we can't do on our own. The reason we're saved by grace through faith is because we don't have the power to make ourselves right with God. God had to do it for us in Jesus, and so on. Well, that's another sermon. But the idea here is these spiritual gifts, then, are something that God is enabling us and giving us and not something that we have the natural ability to do. My working definition of a spiritual gift, it's an enabling by the Spirit of God to serve Him and others in a way naturally impossible for us. In other words, God gives spiritual gifts to give us a supernatural ability to serve Him and other people. And we can't do it of our own strength. That's what a spiritual gift is. You see, we're born with natural talents. We're reborn with supernatural talents. We're born with natural talents. We're reborn with supernatural talents. And one of the real challenges is to <coughs> distinguish between natural talents and abilities and supernatural gifts. And how do they relate? And how, how do they connect? Um, there was a psychiatrist or psychologist, rather, from Oregon once. Um, they developed a natural talents and gifts inventory. It takes six hours to take it. I was, my brain was cramped when I was through. But it's called IDAC. And what he, what he did, he tried to d distinguish between natural talents, and then he talked about the fact that these were natural abilities that we have just based on who God has made us to be. But he said, keep in mind, these aren't supernatural abilities that are the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the book of Corinthians and others in the New Testament. And, but the powerful combination is when our natural talents and abilities are, are made... Um, compatible with our supernatural abilities, then you really see a powerful combination of God working in people's lives. Now, let me give you some personal convictions about my understanding of these supernatural gifts. Because they are from God, they will manifest themselves. In other words, it's something God supernaturally does in us, and it's going to come out. You know, we have a new DNA when we receive the life of God in Jesus. You know, the scientists tell us we have a natural DNA and, and that our DNA determines, you know, you know, characteristics and so forth and so on. Um, uh, and and, all, and even, even goes into personality. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Um, it's been amazing to see sometimes reports of of twins who were, and I've seen several of these, I'm sure you have too, who were separated at birth for whatever reason, and they later met each other as adults, and they found how many common interests they had and things that they uh, were, uh, characteristics that were similar, not just their appearance, but also their interest. So, but when we have a rebirth, we're born from above by the power of God through trusting Jesus Christ, then we get a brand new life, 
and we get a new DNA spiritually that gives us characteristics and values. And whatever that DNA is, it's going to come out. And my point I'm getting at is this, is that for many years, especially back in the 70s and 80s, uh, spiritual gifts inventories were all the rage. Everybody was doing I've done so many spiritual gifts. In, I can't remember how many I've done. But the, but the bottom line is, I, 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 as I've looked at it and evaluated over the years, is there's, there's two issues with that that cause me not to be concerned about spiritual gifts inventories. One is because there's an assumption that you need to know what your gift is in order to use it. I, I disagree. It's in your DNA spiritually. It's going to come out, folks. And, and, and what you need to assess it is not some inventory you take, but the people you do life with in Christ and let them tell you what your gift is. Because I'm not real objective about myself. How about you? You know, when I do some sort of a survey, I, I, I tend to try to read into it, and, and there's a tendency to answer what you want it to be rather than what it really is, right, sometimes. But my point is what's helped me in my walk is the people that I've done life with that are brothers and sisters in Christ, especially one spouse in Christ, if you're married, is those individuals have a better sense of what your gifts are than you, than you do. A much better sense. And so that, that's how life together affirms who we are spiritually. And I think that has everything to do with the calling of God. I'm, I'm all, I, let me just tell you, I'm always nervous about people who are self-called. I'm always nervous about people, well, God has called me to do this. My question is, does anybody that know you affirm that? Has anybody that's close to you said, boy, that's a good idea, you're really hearing from God? You see, I believe that the call, and, and, and I can tell you the way God has worked in my life, it never occurred to me to be a preacher. It occurred to other people around me that I did life together with in the body that said, maybe you ought to think about this. I believe that God works and calls through those around us that know us better many times than we know ourselves. In fact, most of the time than we know ourselves. Now, that being said, what is Paul saying about spiritual gifts here in the broader sense? In other words, if you summarize the entire passage on spiritual gifts, I would summarize with two things. First, that gifts are diverse and dispensed at His, at the Holy Spirit's prerogative. In other words, there are many different gifts, and they are dispensed at the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. In other words, He decides who's going to get what gifts. And and he, He uses His omniscient direction. He knows everything. And you see... As we see the purpose of spiritual gifts, as he, as he uses the body analogy, is that in Jesus, in Christ, we're given gifts so that together we can be the whole body. In other words, together we can reflect Christ. And he's saying, you know, if the whole body's a foot, then it's not a body. <laughs> it's a foot. Do you see that principle? So what he does is he gives each as he desires gifts because he, as God, omnisciently knows what the whole body needs to be Christ 
in the world. So the gifts that we're given are given at the discretion of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what he's saying is that all are equally important and necessary to manifest Jesus. In other words, we're a, he uses the body analogy, and he says no part of the body is more important than another. It takes every part of the body to make a whole body, and, and they're all valuable and important. Well, the same is true in the body of Christ. In other words, that no gift makes anybody superior to anybody else that all are equally valuable. And I think that, and he, and he goes to great lengths to, to enforce this and to, and to state this. And I think this is an incredible, incredibly important principle for the church in that it's another area where I think we have unwittingly allowed the world's value system to infiltrate the mindset of the church. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well... In the world, people are, by default, distinguished in importance based on whatever standards the world uses. I mean, for example, when it comes to current issues, nobody's ever called me and asked me what I think about it and put it on the news. How about you? Are they calling you want to know what you think about it? No. Well, but so many times, I have to admit, I see myself watching television, they got somebody talking about something, and I'm going, so what's he know about it? I mean, why, why, you know, just because he's a good singer, why does that make him in any way more knowledgeable about this issue than anybody else on the face of the earth? And, and, but I'm saying, though, that's an illustration of my point that the world distinguishes between the significance and importance by various criteria, especially their level of influence or notoriety. But we cannot let that same value system drive our perception of one another within the body of Christ because that's, that's, not, God's, that's not God's M.O., as the old saying goes, have you ever heard this saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross? And, and the idea being that what Paul is emphasizing is that even though there are people in the body of Christ that because of their calling or their gifting, they may have more influence, that doesn't make them more important than somebody else. You see, in the church, influence creates responsibility, not importance or value. You see, worth and function are not related in the body of Christ. In the world, function determines worth. But that's not the way it is with Christ. That's not the way it is with His people. Our worth is determined by the fact that we were created by Almighty God by him and for him and that equally Christ died for all of us and he shed his blood for each of us and that makes each of us of infinite value of infinite worth of equal worth in his eyes and we need to let that value system be what drive our perception of one another within the body 
And there's another way that this principle manifests itself that from a perspective of church leadership is really a challenge. I'll never forget many years ago talking to a, a pastor, just casually a pastor who was pastoring a church had been that was very similar to DAC, actually. And, and he had been in ministry many decades. And he said to me one thing. He said, one of the things you'll discover that's one of the biggest challenges you'll have in ministry is trying to get the church to see that everybody's ministry in the church has equal importance and equal value. And, and trying to make sure that the, uh, this, this ministry X doesn't see themselves as more significant than ministry Y, and so forth and so on. In other words, the idea being just like this morning, we've had uh, services, we've had the music ministry, we've had the tech team, we've had um, uh, the, the Bible teaching, we've had life groups, we've had whatever else. I, I can't even, I don't, I don't even begin to name it all, just on and on and on, and go through the entire calendar of the church year, look at all the different things that happen on an ongoing basis. What we tend to do is whatever we're involved in, we tend to presume that that's more important than what anybody else is involved in. And the challenge of leadership is to get people to see and understand that just like Paul uses the body metaphor with spiritual gifts, that it takes all the ministries complementing one another not conflicting with one another to make the whole thing work with Christ and be Christ to the community. So when decisions are made sometime that somebody gets told no, that they can't do something, in light of the fact that there are other issues or bigger pieces going on that they're not aware about or plans that have already been made about other things, and saying yes would would mess up what's already planned for whatever else, then need to understand that the reason is not just because you want to say no, but because it's all got to fit together, and it's all got to work together. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to emphasize with spiritual gifts. That same premise and that same practicality is no one ministry or no one gift in the body of Christ is more important than another. And sometimes if somebody with one ministry or one gift has to step aside in light of the larger picture and the bigger need to make all the gifts and all the ministries work together, they need to recognize it's not all about them. It's all about Christ and what he's doing together in our lives. Now, that being said, we get to the point of asking a bigger picture, as I read this passage on 1 Corinthians 12 on spiritual gifts, what is the bigger takeaway from this passage aside from the specifics of spiritual gifts? What is implied with a capital I in this passage about spiritual gifts? Okay? Now, let me, let me, let me lead this with a question. Let me lead this with a question, don't, and don't respond till I get through. How many of us in here today believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He's the Messiah of Israel. He came to the earth, was born of a virgin, and he lived a perfectly sinless life. He died 
a perfectly satisfactory death was murdered unjustly by the Roman government and God somehow amazingly used the Roman government's execution of him to adequately satisfy God's wrath for your sin and mine. And that was confirmed when Jesus came up out of the grave after he was dead and buried. And he sits right now at the right hand of the Father and that anybody that calls on him and trusts him as their sin-bearer and Savior and surrenders their life in faith to him, in confidence in him, is born again. How many of you here believe that and have done that? Raise your hand. Hallelujah. Now, what the Bible says is that you have, as a result of that, eternal life. What is that about? What's that mean? Well, read some scriptures with me. John 10.10. Read it with me. I came so that they could have life, yes, and have it full to the overflowing. Amazing statement by Jesus saying why he came, but he wasn't speaking to dead people. He was speaking to people who are as alive as you or me, but he's saying you don't have life. He's talking about a whole new dimension of life. He's not talking about conscious existence. Okay? Then John 6.47, he said this as earlier in that book. Read it with me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, notice the tense of that verb, has. It doesn't say will have. It says has. That's a present possession, right? Now, look at Romans 6.23 with me. Read it with me. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So, this gift he gives is eternal life in Jesus Christ as Jesus affirms himself. Now, the idea being is this, is that eternal life, I believe, in the minds of too many people, whether they're believers or not, is a concept of eternal existence. It has nothing to do with that. I mean, yeah, that's a byproduct, but everybody's going to live forever somewhere. The Bible teaches that, but everybody doesn't have eternal life. Okay? So, the idea being that eternal life is a quality of life, a, a, a life that is not natural. And, and actually, if you take in the original text, in the original language, the phrase that's rendered eternal life or everlasting life, and one Bible translation actually does this, it's literally life of the ages. It's a two words. It means life and ages. And one Bible translation actually says, instead of eternal life, it says the life of the age to come. In other words, you're given a life that's of an age to come. It's given to you now ahead of time. It's the very life of Jesus himself. And what I'm submitting to you is that spiritual gifts are a transformation of somebody's life. And if every believer has spiritual gifts, in other words, if there's a supernatural enablement that comes into your life divinely as the gift of God after you come to know Christ, that's proof that 
you have eternal life because the life of Jesus is the source of that gift. And I'm submitting that the fruit of the Spirit, which is in Galatians 5, and the gifts of the Spirit, which are here in some other passages, are confirmation that somebody else has taken up residence in your body and living their life in and through you, and that happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit. You see, a changed life and the enablement to have the gifts and the desires to do things, just like we said, the DNA. You know, um, some, some of the folks kid me on the staff about it all the time, but one of my closest friends in ministry that we had known each other for years, he said, Brad, I can tell you exactly what your spiritual gift is, your primary spiritual gift, period. It's encouragement. And I said, okay. Let me tell you what. That's going to come out no matter what. And let me tell you how I can confirm that gift. If I have to say anything to anybody that I think is going to discourage them, it makes me nuts. I go crazy. I do not handle it well. Because as I told our kids all the time growing up, I said, never forget, your strength is your greatest weakness. Because what you do, you ride that horse over a cliff. <laughs> Balance is the hardest thing to maintain in life. But my point is that nobody sat me down and said, well, now your gift is the gift of encouragement, and you need to be sure to try to help people do that. I mean, nobody ever did that. But Jesus came in and manifested that, and whenever I was around anybody that I sensed might be discouraged, I just couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop it. I was compelled to try, well, hey, hang in there, man. You, you're going to make it. You're going to do it. And my brother, who was very close to me, he said, hey, I'm telling you what, what's going on with you. I, I got it figured out. Because he said, because that's how God had used me in his life. Now, I'm just using myself as an illustration that eternal life brings changes. You change your want-tos. Dallas Willard was one of the greatest Christian writers of the 20th century. He was uh, in heaven now. He's a professor at the University of Southern California, a professor of philosophy, a, a, a committed, born-again believer, and brilliant man. And Dallas Willard was once asked the question about, what about these people who claim to have made a decision for Jesus Christ and claim to believe in him, but there's nothing in their life that's different from their unbelieving people around them? There's no, tra there's no change. There's no transformation. And I'll never forget his response. He said, that is inconsistent with eternal life. That's the only way he responded. If you have eternal life, you're going to be a changed person right now. And that's the life of God, and spiritual gifts are confirmation of that. Let me close with a quick thought. I've gone longer than I meant to. I always hate to run late on Sunday morning because I'm not worried about you or me. It's the people working in the nursery that I'm concerned about. Because if old Brad's down there, I'm going, what are they doing? God bless them. Praise God. And there's an example of service and gifts because those folks 
Every time you see anybody working in children's ministry or nursery, you tell them, thank God for them, what a great job they're doing. And if you're doing that, thank God for you. Well, that's not in the sermon, but amen. But here's the way I want to wind this up, and that is this. A majority of you raised your hand and said you, you were trusting Christ. I'll take your word for it. If you're not, you come on down here and we're done. We'll talk about it, and we can help how you can have eternal life, and you can be a brand-new person. We'll be glad to talk to you about that. But that being said, how many of us, I remember the old, I love the old movies. I love the black and white movies. I, I love the old movies. And the old Superman shows. I love the old Superman, right? Now, and the modern ones are just too complicated for me. I love the old ones. And, and Clark Kent, he always changed clothes in a phone booth, right? Right there. I'm telling you, that's miraculous right there. I've never been in a phone booth lately, but I'll tell you what, changing clothes in one, especially that quick, proves he's Superman. I got it figured out. But here's the deal. Clark Kent always went in there, mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet or whatever it was, right? But he comes out Superman. Folks, we've got a phone booth right here. And when you trust Christ and you surrender to Him, you don't come out Superman, but here's the beauty. Superman comes into you. He makes you like himself.